following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and we'll get right to our text this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this rhythm of grace that you give us to gather as your people on Sunday mornings and then to be sent back out as missionaries to the world. And today we come to feast upon your word. Um, We have an appetite. Sometimes we're not aware of that appetite for your word, but there's an appetite in us that needs to be fulfilled. We need to come and feast. And to this morning, you provide that opportunity through the liturgy and through song and through the preaching and reading of the word. And so we want to come and fill our bellies. We ask that, that you would help us to be like the psalmist who delights in your law, who finds deep pleasure in your law. And even as we examine the law this morning, we help us to delight and take pleasure in our Savior even more so. So I ask that you would help me this morning, a, a weak man, um, to speak, to declare the truths that you have laid out before us for our good and for your glory. Um, would you think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, 
and use me to communicate to your people what good news you have for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are on the home stretch, if you will, of our mini-series through the Ten Commandments. We are in week nine of this, and we've been going um, week, one week at a time, one commandment at a time, kind of dissecting and pulling out what the commandments have for us. And really, as we've gone through this study, we've seen that God is laying out his requirements, what he expects from his people. And then in turn, we've actually seen how we've failed to live up to those requirements. And what it's ultimately done is pointed us to our need for someone who can do it perfectly for us. And so for me, this has been a tremendously helpful series to go through. Um, I, I feel like I'm worshiping Jesus more and seeing how he has fulfilled the law for me. And I hope the same is for you too as well because what, what we're seeing here is ultimately that Savior is Jesus. And, and this ninth commandment that we're gonna take a look at this morning is no different than the previous commandments because it's gonna expose what God requires from his people. But it's also gonna show us how we've failed at this, that regardless of how good of a person any of us are, we have all failed this commandment in some sense. And it's by, by its broadest meaning, what the ninth commandment can be explained as is do not lie. It's been summed up in that short of a way. And there's, there is good reason for this commandment. If we think about why, well, why, why would God lay out this commandment for his people? And last week we talked a little bit about how God is creating this community of people to be distinct, um, to, to, to be a certain way among a watching world. And, and just like stealing, what we, dis, what we saw last week is how stealing can destroy that community. Lying is very much the same way, that lying can destroy community. Um, and so we see that in this commandment, God has a desire for his, his community to flourish, to be distinct, but there's also an even deeper reason why God would have to lay out this commandment in the first place, that we are actually prone to lie. That there's, if we look at Romans um, 1, we're told that we actually, because of the fall, we have a, a disdain for the truth. We would like to suppress the truth, and therefore we lie. And so the question that I want to go at today is why? What is it about us that gravitates toward lies rather than the truth? What, what would compel us to be dishonest? And so with this ninth commandment, what I want to do is examine the heart motives of why we might lie. Why, why specifically, why we might bear false witness against our neighbor. So that's kind of where we're moving toward this morning. And so if you want to open up your Bibles, we're in Exodus 20. Um, you probably can recite this by now. It's been nine weeks of the same thing over and over. Exodus 20, verse 16, looking at the, the ninth commandment, which reads like this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, what this commandment does, it condemns specifically in its, its original focus, its original context, it condemns a lying witness specifically in the courtroom. Someone who testifies falsely against a neighbor um, or, or anyone who's con, con, um, accused of a crime. And while this commandment, we've, we've talked before about how these commandments are laid out in order of importance and why this commandment is number nine on the list, this is still a very important commandment because at the time this was given, um, in the ancient world, this commandment could mean life and death for your neighbor. At the, in their judicial system, a person could be tried in court based upon the eyewitness account of one person. So for example, if your neighbor said that you stole a black sheep from him and you happen to have a black sheep in your flock, based upon your neighbor's one eyewitness account, 
you could be tried and convicted of a crime. And so it, this is why the truth is so important. If that one person bears false witness, well, that would essentially destroy the legal system in a sense or the effectiveness of it. And it could, depending on how severe the crime was, it could ultimately mean death for that person, if not prison or fines or something of that nature. And so I'm sure you can see here with this system there's a great danger here, that there's a lot riding on one person's testimony. See, if it's, if it's a truthful testimony, that's great. The criminal has been caught. He can be put away. Justice is served. The system works. But if, the, if, if it's not a true testimony, if it's falsified, then an innocent person could be forced to bear an unjust punishment. In other words, false witness could be fatal, that an innocent man could be put to death by lying. And so it's in this original context that we read this commandment, and then, and then we see even a broadening, broadening of the meaning of this commandment. The, the ninth commandment doesn't just have implications for the courtroom, it has implications for everyday life. It, it affects how we use our words on a daily best, basis and how they affect our neighbor. And so the, the ninth commandment is broadened to expand, expanded to include all kinds of lesser sins which includes all forms of lying, dishonesty, and specifically any lying and dishonesty that's targeted to the harm of our neighbor. And so what, what the sum of the ninth commandment could look like is to love your neighbor with your words. Now in the New, to, New Testament, the ninth commandment is broadened even farther. And, and as we dig in, we see here that Paul, in his writing to the second Corinthians, he cautions God's people against quarreling, against slander and gossip. In Galatians 5, he says that this discord and dissension that's happening within the the community is an act of our sinful nature. In Ephesians 4, he charges the people to get rid of slander and malice within them. And you see, all of these things are, are expressions or violations of the ninth commandment, where rather than using words to build one another up, these words are used to tear neighbors apart, to bite and devour one another. And perhaps one of the most common violations of the ninth commandment that we come face to face with in our experience is with gossip. See, gossip is a way that our neighbor is charged, tried, and convicted in the court of the public eye. See, it's either things that are either untrue or partially true that are said in a way that damages the reputation or attacks the character of our neighbor. Proverbs 22, one says, a good name is more desirable than great riches. You see, it's a good thing for us to be seen as reputable, to be seen in a good light, to be known for our good character and our goodwill. And we understand this, especially if you're a business owner uh, with, when it comes to customer reviews. When the customer speaks well of us, it helps our business, whether it be a Google review, Facebook review, our name is brought up with a good review. It's like gold. It helps us. It it propagates our business. They speak of your reputation, and it generates more livelihood for you. It's a good thing to be seen well in the public eye. But what gossip does, it steals that away from our neighbor. It's a way of, of taking your neighbor's treasure of a good name. See, even participating, not just, not just actively gossiping about someone violates this commandment, but, but participating in it and receiving and hearing gossip makes us implicated in this sin as well. Thomas Watson wrote this. He says, 
That he, raises a, he that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. See, not only are we called to refrain from gossip, not take part in it, but we are to, to prevent it from happening, to stop it as we see it. And I know this isn't an easy feat. I, I think everybody can kind of relate to that, that inward pull. We like the juicy stuff, right? You hear something about a friend. It's like, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. I can't wait to tell somebody else, right? We take it in. It's, it's like a, a morsel that goes down into the belly, as Proverbs 18, 8 says. But the only problem with this gossip, it's, it's like a morsel that's poisoned. See, there's, there's damage done in gossip, not only for the one who takes it in and hears it and, and kind of gives themselves to, to those things, but for the one who's being slandered. There's a Jewish proverb about a, a, a reputable rabbi spent decades living in a community um, serving, loving the people, caring for the people well. He was seen uh, very, as a very respectable, trustworthy man, um, devoted to his community. And, um, and, and this guy moves into town, and, and he starts spreading these lies about this rabbi. He says, well, you know, his motives are maybe not quite all right. He's, he's taking a little bit here and there. He's doing stuff that's kind of shady. And what this, this gossip sort of provokes among the community is a sense of speculation and division. People are, are starting to wonder if they can actually trust this rabbi, if he's really the man of character that they thought he, would, that he was, and so what eventually happened is the community starts assuming the worst about this guy. I said, you know what, I, I saw him do this, and you know, I'm not exactly sure, but this makes sense when, when I take what this guy said into account. And so they start dividing among themselves, and, and they, they ostracize this rabbi based upon this rumor that's spreading. He's stripped of his, his credibility, and this is, this is very regretful for the rabbi. He's devastated by this. He had worked so hard. He cared so deeply for these people, and now it seems as if they had turned their back on him for no reason or for at, at the word of this stranger in town. Now, seeing the damage done, this man who was spreading these rumors, he finally came clean. He comes to the rabbi. He says, I, I see what I've done. I've, I've hurt you. I've, I've drug your name through the mud. What can I do to make things right? How can, I make, how can I make straight the crooked things that I've done? And the rabbi says to him, well, I want you to go home. I want you to take your pillow off your bed, and I want you to go outside on a windy day. And I want you to tear the pillowcase, and I want you to scatter all of the feathers in the wind. Make sure that all of them blow away. So the man did it and went home, grabbed his pillowcase, spread it out in the wind, he comes back to the rabbi. He says, I, I did it. Now what else can I do? And the rabbi said, well, now you need to take your pillowcase and you know, get, need to go gather all of the feathers and put them back in your pillowcase. Collect every single feather. And the man said, well, that's impossible. I can't do that. And the rabbi says, exactly. See, with those words that this man spread, he cannot reverse the damage that he's done to his neighbor. This rabbi's name had been dragged through the mud, and now there's lingering effects. And the same is true that when we, when we release gossip or slander about our neighbor as well, we can never reel that back in. There's, there's a lasting damage 
that's done and it's harming to them. See, it's, it's interesting here that gossip and slander, false witness is actually a way of harming the people that we were commanded to love. Our words can be destructive and harmful to our neighbor. Now this brings me to the question here is why would we do this? What would compel us to hurt our neighbor in such a way? Why would we spread rumors? Why would we gossip? Why would we make false accusations against our neighbor? And Jesus tells us actually that that what comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart. So if that's the case, then this question actually doesn't just take us to to our mouths at the problems in our mouth. The problem is actually in our heart. And so it takes us to the subterrain of our heart. And and it is, I'll warn you, sort of a dark and cold place to go. Because when we dig down, what we see is that bearing false witness against our neighbor is typically a displacement of our own insecurities. Simply put, we lie to make others look bad in order to make ourselves look good. Our sinful actions against our neighbor are motivated at the core by self-love. See, selfishness is the engine that propels gossip and false witness. At the core of it is, I only care about me. It's a willingness to lie to make others look bad in order to make myself look good. And ultimately, it's a pursuit of self-glory at the expense of my neighbor. Now, just think about that for a moment. The times that you may have lied or, or said something untrue or half-true about someone, specifically to their harm, why did you do it? Was it revenge? Taking matters into your own hands? You've got to make them pay for it. It's retribution. I felt like I had been wrong, so I can now step in and wrong someone else. Was it because you're jealous? Somebody had something that you wanted, whether it be the respect of your peers, the admiration of others, so you try to take them out of the limelight in order to sort of inject yourself into that vacuum? Was it to get something that you felt entitled to? Right? You frame up these half-truths to make yourself look good, whether it be to avoid the consequences of your actions or to pass the blame onto somebody else. Maybe it's a matter of self-preservation. Right? You're trying to protect your own reputation by other, making others look inferior to you. See, I think that's a pretty common thing in our competitive culture that we live in. We're always trying to get the leg up on others. And one of the ways that we fight these feelings of inadequacy, which many of us face, is to bring others down so that we can feel elevated. See, there's just all of these reasons that we would engage in gossip or false witness are packed with selfish intent. That's at the heart of it, is selfishness. It's all about me, and it's all about what's best for me. But not only do we commit these sins of commission by doing what we ought to not do, right, through gossip and lying, but we also break this commandment through sins of omission, by not doing what we should do. See, by not doing what we should do, which should be speaking truth, 
And we don't do that. It's equally condemning and motivated by selfishness as well. You see, with the, where the ninth commandment forbids false testimony, it also commands truthful witness about and to our neighbor. See, that's the other side of the ninth commandment, that we have an obligation to the truth. But just as selfishness propels our gossip and false witness, selfishness also compels us to keep our mouth shut when our neighbor and their character is under attack. Right? It's easier to just roll with the gossip. Right? We don't want to stop it because that, that, that'd be put myself out there too much. Right? What happens if it turns on me and they start talking about me that way? See, there's a fear to speak up the truth. And our silence can be just as harmful and unloving to our neighbor as opening our mouth against them. Martin Luther King said that in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. See, when selfishness or self-preservation keeps us in silence, we have failed to love our neighbor. Think back to the story of the rabbi. Right, if someone from the community would have spoken up, hey, I know these things to not be true about this man. Perhaps that could have shut down the slander that had been circulating and preserved the rabbi's reputation. But those who knew the truth and did not speak up into that are just as much to blame as the man who spread the rumors. See, these selfish actions, whether it be false witness or silencing the truth, reveal the selfishness that's embodied or, or implanted in our hearts. And with this selfishness embedded in our hearts, it makes us impossible to love our neighbors well. See, the, the commandments, commandments five through 10 that we've been going through are all about how to love your neighbor well. So the convicting part for me this week as I've been working through this text is not, not that I lie, right? I do that. Not that I don't step into the truth when I should. I do do that. The convicting part about this commandment is that I am failing to love my neighbor. It exposes my selfish heart, reveals my own self-interest and my disregard for my neighbors. I think that is the convicting part of this commandment. Now, in the New Testament, in John's gospel, we're given a snapshot of this selfishness of the human heart and the destruction that it causes. We, we look to the passion account, actually, of Jesus, sort of the end of Jesus' life. And at this point, the religious leaders of, Jewish, of Jesus' time are essentially fed up with Jesus for selfish reasons. Jesus was making them look bad. Jesus' life always expressed genuine love for his neighbor. He was healing, he was teaching, he was touching, he was living in community, always loving his neighbor with his actions, with his words. And by chapter five of John's gospel, we're told that the Jews are persecuting Jesus. They don't like him, they want him to stop. And this only intensified throughout Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he goes, he was faced opposition the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people resisted him. They did not like him. And it was their, their love for self that would eventually drive them to hate Jesus. And in the culmination of their hate and disdain for Jesus, it reaches a climax in chapter 18 of John's gospel. 
They want Jesus out of the picture so badly that they are willing to, to bear false witness against him in court to have him killed. And Matthew 26, speaking to this in in a different gospel account, he says that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many came forward. So at this time, there are all kinds of people coming forward, willing to bear false witness against Jesus, to say this man did this when he did not do that. But even in in this court system, and it's it's an illegal trial at this point, they're unable to form a, a, a cohesive argument for Jesus guilt but their their hatred for Jesus their love for self compelled them to keep pushing and so the the case pushed through to Pilate and Pilate had great power because at this point Pilate was the one who was able to issue the death penalty to give the Jewish people to give the Jewish leaders what they wanted for Jesus so they spun the case the religious leaders spun the case from a a religious um, offense among the Jews to a political case before, G- before Pilate. They're saying that Jesus is trying to be king here and therefore he's in opposition to the rule of Rome. And so Pilate questions Jesus, asks him what's going on and, and, and Pilate says, after questioning Jesus, says, I find no guilt in him. These charges that you've brought before me, I, I, don't, I don't see them here. As far as he can tell, Jesus is innocent. But the religious leaders and all the people continue to push for Jesus' crucifixion. They have the chance. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Well, we want Barabbas. And so Jesus is pushed to execution, all based upon the false testimony of the people. Now, at the same time, while this has happened, where where people are actually bearing false witness against Jesus, we see Peter remaining silent. See, when when Jesus is arrested and he's brought into the court, Peter kind of lingers from behind, gets into the the little area, the the, the courtyard. And a woman looks at Peter and says, aren't you you one of Jesus' disciples? And, and two more times, Peter's asked the same thing. And, and what this is, I, certainly Peter is afraid for his own life. But Peter has an opportunity to speak up, to speak the truth about Jesus. Well, everyone else is bearing false witness about who Jesus is and what he's done. Peter says, no, I don't know him. He remains silent. Peter had the opportunity to defend an innocent man and rather, he remains silent and suppresses the truth. Right? Again, the selfishness of the heart, that he is more concerned about himself than he is the innocent man of Jesus. Now, while we see this selfishness on both sides of the spectrum here, we see the, the ninth commandment being broke by commission, by people bearing false witness against Jesus. We see the ninth commandment being broken by omission, by not speaking up in truth. On Peter's part, we see Jesus keeping this commandment perfectly. There's a contrast here of our sinful hostility towards neighbor, our, our sinful selfishness, and the selfless, lo- selfless love that Christ has for his neighbor. See, when Jesus is before Pilate, 
He says in John 18, 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Pilate's confused by this. He says, what is truth? Now see, the truth that Jesus was bearing witness to would be displayed as he hung on the cross. The cross bears witness to the truth about us in two ways. The first way that it bears witness to the truth of us, Jesus' neighbor, is that we are really that depraved. That we are so wicked and so sinful, so self-focused, that we would either actively take part in the false testimony against our neighbor, a perfect, innocent man, or that we would be silent in his false accusations. Because of the deceit and sin in our hearts, we are the ones who are actually supposed to be on that cross. That as we lie and gossip and destroy neighbor, our selfishness is exposed. The sinfulness of our heart is revealed. So the cross bears witness to the truth that you are more sinful than you ever thought. But there's a second thing that the cross bears witness to, and that's the truth that you are more loved than you ever dared to dream. See, that that Jesus' love is so strong for us that he would willingly go to the cross. That rather than sinners, deceits, liars like you and me face our own destruction on account of our lives, which is what God would actually do according to Psalm Psalm 5 verse 6, Jesus would be destroyed in our place that he would willingly give his body to be broken, that his blood would be shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. See, this is what true love looks like. This is what true selfless love for neighbor looks like, a genuine care for neighbor. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's precisely what Jesus did. Shows the cross is so cross shows us that we are worse than we ever thought, but more loved than we ever dared to dream. And what a great truth that is. So it's by faith that we hold on to this gospel truth that Jesus bears witness to as he hangs on the cross, and we believe it. John the Baptist said this in John 3. He said, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given us all things, in, given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so it's by Jesus bearing witness to the truth that we're more sinful than we have thought, more loved than we dare to dream, that he releases us from the wrath of God that's due to us based upon our sin of breaking the ninth commandment. And through his work, he frees us into new life in him. It's out of this deep love that we receive from God in Christ that we become people who are marked by deep Love, people who are marked by a deep love for God and for neighbor. See, this deep love that Jesus expresses on the cross changes us. It changes our self-promoting ways to selfless love for others. 
In fact, it's impossible for you to have experienced the deep love of Jesus and then not give it to your neighbor. And the way that we express this deep love is by bearing witness. The ultimate way we express love for neighbor is by bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. We do that three ways here at Sacred City. We say, we say gospel community mission. And I'm gonna change the first one. Gospel, I'm gonna say worship. We worship God in spirit and truth. So we gather together to testify of the goodness of God. We sing songs of praise and adoration. We confess our sin and we repent. We look to Jesus as our only hope. That is what it means to bear witness to the truth, that Jesus is in fact our only hope. We do this in the context of community as we live together. Lives of service and self-denial for the, for the betterment of our neighbor. It means we encourage and love our neighbor and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. We love and support them in seasons of difficulty, even when it costs us a great deal of time, maybe resources, emotional capital. We step into the messiness to bear witness to the truth. We speak truth in love. We don't just blast truth. We do so graciously. We bear witness to the fact that God is at work in the person right next to you. We, we acknowledge that God is moving that person from one, to glory, one degree of glory to the next, one degree of Christ-likeness to the next. And we do this on mission because the good news isn't just for us, the good news is for everyone, for the world. And so we take that out to the, to the world, one neighborhood at a time, one neighbor at a time. And actually, the ninth commandment takes a turn. Yes, we are to bear true witness about our neighbor, but now we are to bear witness to our neighbor about the truth that Jesus has come to save sinners through his free grace, right? That, that your neighbor is more sinful than they thought, but more love than they dared to dream. See, that's the good news that your neighbor needs to hear, that God has made a way for them in Christ. And so we, as God's people, through the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we step into bearing witness to the truth about what God has done for us, about the way that God looks at us and views us in Christ and the way that he has a plan to advance his kingdom here on earth. As Jesus was preparing to leave this world, he gave us the Lord's Supper as a means of grace in which we would bear witness to the gospel truth. Right, it points us backward to the cross, that we are indeed more sinful than we ever thought, that Christ had to die for us, but we are so loved that he willingly did it, that his body was broken, his blood was shed in our place. So for those who have put their trust in Jesus, who have been baptized, we're gonna bear witness to this truth together. We're gonna rally around the Lord's table, not only looking back to what Christ has done on the cross, but looking forward to what awaits us in glory. To be made one, to be unified, where we experience true love for neighbor. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I, I wanna plead with you this morning to take Christ. Look at what he has done to free you from your sin, from death, and by faith, trust in his finished work. Father, we...
We are so grateful for what Christ has done in order to free us from the wrath that our disobedience has put us under. We're so thankful that Christ was a willing sacrifice in our place, that he went to the cross in his mind with the joy that was set before him to see his people reconciled to God and to one another and to see for them to experience the full life of loving God and loving neighbor. Father, we ask that you would help us to be your witness in this world, that the truth would be on our tongues, that we would, we would speak with grace, that we would be people who love the truth, who love your word, who proclaim your gospel among all peoples. Father, we realize that in a world where there's a lot of lies and misconceptions, false news, all of those things, the truth is so sweet now. Would you send us out as faithful messengers of that? Would you quicken our feet? Would you give us wisdom and how to speak and witness to the truth for our good and for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The men who are serving would come forward.